But before he does, uh, oh, are we not on yet? We're on now, I guess. Okay. Um, I want to uh, mention next week's program. Uh, Trevor Harrison will be back, and he's going to speak on should Canada adopt a guaranteed annual income. Um, that's likely to be a, a pretty lively uh, topic for the next few months, so um, I encourage you to come here. Um, now I'd like to invite our guest speaker to come back, political scientist from the university, and he's ready to take your questions. Hello. Tad Mitsui, thank you for your presentation, it was very helpful. When I was younger, during the 80s, I remember demonstrating against Canada-US free trade agreement. And I also remember John Turner pointing at uh, Brian Mulroney saying, you sold us out. Even liberals were against free trade. What happened? Well, I mean, that's a pretty open-ended question. Um, <laughs> not sure how I go about. I, I mean, I remember the I remember the '80s too, right? I mean, I'm 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 not that young, so I, I remember a lot of the debate around the Canada-U.S. free trade agreement myself. I was in university at the time, and it was extremely heated. And in some ways, it was it was a fascinating time because, and I didn't understand that. At, then, but I understand this now, it was transformative in the way international trade was. And, and whether you thought we got sold out, as, as Turner said, I mean, there is some merit to that argument. I, uh, there's a lot of bad things associated with liberalization, and liberalization absolutely occurred and, and happened in a way that was transformational in that period. And I tried to touch on that a little bit with my, uh, with my presentation today. So um, I guess it really depends on your perspective as to whether or not uh, you know, Mulroney sold us out or not. I mean, if you're someone who's in support of trade liberalization, it actually was a positive agreement because it did liberalize a lot of things. If you're someone who has concerns about trade liberalization, uh, then yes, absolutely, you could probably say, because it was transformational. Uh, and it, but again, the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement and then subsequently NAFTA, you can't look at them independently. They're collectively part of that much bigger Uruguay round discussion uh, that w I was referring to in the presentation. And a lot of new rules about trade, yeah. Chris, uh, <clears throat> thank you. Thank you for your presentation. Lots of good stuff. My mic's not on? It is now. Um, I want to go back to the, well, uh, periodically when Trump tweets out that he's going to rip up NAFTA, we hear Canadian politicians say, well, that's fine. Uh, Canada can survive without NAFTA. And... Um, variations of that theme and I wonder uh, is that just bluster and whistling in the wind or um, or are they right? Well we do have I mean you, ha you have to understand that the American market is in terms of international trade for Canada is extremely important. 75% of our uh, goods that we sell internationally go to the United States. 70, it's been as high as 80 at times. Um, so 
it wouldn't be good if we uh, didn't have NAFTA, but it wouldn't mean that we wouldn't trade with the Americans. It would just mean that uh, the provisions of NAFTA that existed, we would go back to uh, the rules that already exist. We're both members of the WTO, so our, our rules of the game now would be WTO rules, which, as I've tried to say today, aren't that much different than NAFTA rules to start with. So, I mean, I will give Canadian officials uh, a great deal of credit for how they've handled this, because they haven't taken the bait at all. I think I, there's, there's some very good federal trade negotiators, and I think they understand the reality is, is that A, it's probably not going to get ripped up. B, if it does get ripped up, we have other ways to manage our relationship with the Americans. Uh, but most importantly, I think they understand that uh, they're dealing with a, a particularly unique time in U.S. history with a particularly unique president and uh, who seems to like our prime minister for some reason. So. Uh, having uh, Trudeau down there on his, he's been on his charm offensives a few times now, touring U.S. capitals at the state level and Washington, and I think it's actually made a, a difference here in, in terms of uh, settling down. So I, I think at the end of the day, um, there, there's still a lot of ways to manage the relationship even if NAFTA doesn't exist. Bevman, <coughs> is it on? Bevman Delatherstone, thank you very much for your talk. I have to thank Tad for his question because um, Maud Barlow with Council of Canadians was very furious about NAFTA because of the concern of losing Canada's right over its own water. And what, what is the situation now with the, with the current NAFTA trade deal and so not the one that's being negotiated, but the current, what we currently have in terms of water. In other words, could we possibly lose our water to the US, in particular James Bay? Um, that's a big question. Um, you have to understand there are people in Canada that do want to export our water. Uh, it's, a, it's a good that we are, again, we have offensive and defensive interests in trade policy. That's something we have a lot of, and people want our water, so there are people that want to sell it uh, and make money off of that. So uh, in terms of the NAFTA as it exists now, uh, I always tell people, well, if there was going to be an issue, we probably would have seen it by now, because we're into almost 30 years of the existing NAFTA framework. Um, I, I, I don't want to stand up here and say we'll never have a problem related to the export of water in Canada, or that the Americans will take all of our, I don't want to, I can't look into my future ball and say that, but what I will say based on my experience is that if it was likely to be an issue, uh, a, a significant issue, it, we probably would have seen some signs of it by now. Um, but again, it's, it's hard to predict the future and uh, the, the agreement as it currently exists, we haven't seen some of the concerns that the Council of Canadians has talked about materialize, but again, that doesn't mean it won't happen at some point. I'm not sure that really answers your question, but. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Chris, I was wondering about the uh, environmental issues. Trump seems to think that uh, there's no such thing as global warming and climate change. Uh, what is Canada's ability to, to do something serious about climate change uh, uh, when you considered in context of the trade agreements. And also, uh, I understand that once you've uh, committed to exporting 
certain amount of oil, uh, uh, you have to keep doing it, whether you like it or not. Okay, well, I'll deal with the environmental stuff first. Um, so a couple things. First, you need to know that NAFTA does have an environmental uh, chapter in it. Uh, it also has a labor chapter in it. Um, if you look at those agreements carefully, there's not a lot of teeth to them. I mean, there's, an, uh, there's a, uh, a regulatory council, I believe, or a council for the environment that exists that's a NAFTA secretariat. They, they explore NAFTA environmental issues, but it doesn't, there's no dispute settlement. There's no punishment associated with violating environmental things. So that was the reason that was even ended up in there was because of Bill Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton wasn't going to accept the NAFTA as it was originally negotiated had to have something to give to his democratic base in the United States, and that's how we got labor and environmental side deals. They're political, they're not really economic at all, uh, and so there's not a lot of teeth to them. So are trade agreements, the bit, probably the, the question that you got to at the end there, are trade agreements the right place to deal with environmental issues? Uh, a lot of people argue that they're not, uh, that we have a separate uh, the Paris Accords and we have other avenues to deal with environmental issues where you're not linking them to trade explicitly uh, and that might be the better way to make progress. Now, the caveat to that though is our current government, our, uh, Trudeau's, Trudeau's government, has been talking a lot about what they call a progressive trade agenda uh, in recent months. So that's the idea that we absolutely should be talking about progressive, what I would call <coughs> third generation issues, uh, like the environment and labor and trade agreements, but also things like gender also things like indigenous issues and indigenous rights, uh, human rights, those types of things. So the bigger question here is, do any of those issues belong in trade agreements or should they be pursued in other forums? Uh, I'm not sure our government, uh, our government, well, our government has made it clear that they believe trade agreements should be something that they, but again, the rhetoric and the reality don't really match, right? So they talk about the need to do that, but then don't make it a priority when we sit down and, and negotiate something like a new NAFTA or an agreement with the Europeans or, or anything like that, so. Good question. Now, are the uh, oil exports uh, those kind of things? Yeah, oil, that was one of the, the things under the original NAFTA that was uh, controversial was that we basically have to keep our, our supply of oil to the United States based on a two-year average. So whatever we've sent them in the two years prior, we have to keep those pipes open uh, and keep them, the oil flowing into that market. Um, so that's still there, it's still part of the agreement. Uh, to my knowledge, we've always uh, reached that capacity. Uh, pipelines in, 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 uh, in North America all run north-south. Uh, very few of them, despite the Trans Mountain stuff we're talking about now, very few pipelines move uh, east-west in, in this country. So, um, and again, why was that in there? That was Alberta wanted that in NAFTA. We wanted to have the guaranteed market. So. Um. Mary Shillington, thanks, Chris. Uh, we had some interesting conversations at our table about how you started with provincial kinds of uh, uh, negotiations and so on. So I wonder if you have any comments you're willing to risk at this point around the conflict between BC and Alberta at this point around our pipeline and so on. And where do you think it's going to go? Yeah, I mean, we have, and I alluded to this a bit in the, at the end of the presentation, we have a very fragmented national economy. It's a very regional economy. It's not easy for things to move back and forth. So uh, the Supreme Court ruling about the beer in New Brunswick was an important one. Basically, it reinforced the, the system that we have now. 
that, that's still going to keep those barriers up. Um, so specifically the Alberta BC thing there, it will play out in a number of different fronts. Uh, one of them is BC's uh, uh, court reference challenge that they've tabled. So they're asking the courts for guidance on uh, what they can and can't do. Uh, then there'll be the political and economic uh, battles back and forth. So, you know, we'll stop buying BC wine and, you know, they'll threaten to turn off Alberta, or we th are we threatening to turn off the oil? I think we're threatening to turn off the oil. Uh, but it, it'll, be, it'll be the theater of the game, right? And it will play out o over a long period of time. But at the end of the day, BC's on pretty shaky ground constitutionally about what they can and can't do here. So, um, but what they're doing, this is why we call, I teach political economy. You're going to have an economist here in a couple weeks who will talk about things from an economic perspective. We're political economies. So the politics of, of what's going on between BC and Alberta is in many ways more important than the economics. Uh, not to dismiss the economics, but it's politics, really. Uh, you have a, uh, an NDP and a Green Coalition government in, in British Columbia that has made these, these pledges to these groups, and they have to live up to those commitments. But the great irony here is we have two NDP governments fighting these things. Uh, this, is, this is something that wouldn't be, uh, would be very predictable if we had a Conservative government in Alberta and an NDP government. But to have two NDP governments, um, I think there's some longer-term vision that might be missing here from those parties in terms of how they might be handling this in terms of their ongoing electoral success uh, in the future. But uh. Hi, my name is Peter Beal. And uh, I'm just wondering, like, TPP, doesn't that have a clause in it uh, for labor mobility too? Yep. Uh, like companies can move their employees to a different yep. country if they set up a factory there? So I'm, I'm just wondering, isn't the whole process, the whole uh, from GATT to WTO, isn't that whole process just to create one world? You know, like get rid of all the borders as far as corporate trade is concerned? I mean, I'm just thinking maybe corporations want to take over from governments sort of thing. Well, in some ways they have. Uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's not an uh, invalid uh, observation. Um, but having said that, if you look at the trade agreements themselves, that, that's not really a, what the agenda that's being advanced here is. I mean, labor mobility, like, let's look at labor mobility, for example. There's lots of rules about labor mobility. How can labor move across borders? How can it not move across borders? Again, we have big restrictions within our own country about how labor can move. So uh, if you look at the language in the TPP, for example, it's basically WTO language on labor mobility. It's what I would call WTO plus language. So they've tinkered around a few things. A few professions might get to move that didn't move before, but it's not a, it's not a revamp of what, what, uh, what exists in other agreements. So there's lots of limitations to labor mobility, lots of them. Uh, and in fact, if you get into the agreement and start looking at the actual details of it, and the devil's in the details of these things, there is, is very limited professions where you can have free movement of peoples. And usually a country will only open those doors when they are in dire need of something. Uh, so uh, again, even within Canada, it's really tough to move. Uh, one of the things of the new West Partnership Trade Agreement, the NWPTA, which uh, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Alberta negotiated, Manitoba joined recently, big part of that was labor mobility. So if you pull, pull up the agreement, go, go home and Google it, pull it up, there's an annex at the end, there's about 400 professions listed there. And you'll notice uh, that some will get to move freely, and a lot of them don't get to move at all. 
What was the purpose of the exercise? The purpose of the exercise was just to put it down in paper so that we have a list now and so people can now understand who can move and who can't. Because you, prior to that, it was in, you know, if you're a chef in, in Manitoba and you want to go work in Vancouver, well, you don't know what their certification requirements are, right? But at least, at least now we have it, it's, it's transparent. And so workers can know who can move and who can't. And now, subsequently, if it would ever go, went to future negotiations, they'd probably try and knock down some of those barriers. But again, labor mobility, and the, it, it works pretty much the same way internationally. There's lots of limits to labor mobility. I guess the one world thing too, the last thing I'll say. Yeah, it's about tariffs. International trade agreements are about tariffs and the movement of goods and products into markets. That's first generation. Second generation is just rules. It's just rules about trade practices. That's what it is. And it, yes, they're liberalizing, uh, but those rules, if you, if you look at them closely, there are all sorts of exclusions, all sorts of ways that we don't make commitments. And most of the language is so vague that we are allowed to protect the things that we still want to protect and do. Chris, uh, in a couple of weeks, we will hear more about supply management. What's your, what's your opinion uh, on the supply management uh, issue? And, and maybe talk a little bit about softwood lumber as well. Okay, well, um, supply management, you'll hear from Dan Leroy in a couple of weeks about supply management, and I'll just tell you all right now, uh, he thinks it's bad, so you don't have to come. <laughs> <laughs> no, come, he's really entertaining, he's a good guy. Um, but that's really what you're going to, but he's an economist, right? So from an economic perspective, supply management may not be the efficient way to deal with things because it creates uh, barriers to movement of goods and economists like to bring those things down and the economists are about efficiencies, economists are about uh, trying to uh, look for comparative advantage, all those things, right? But as a political economist, supply management is something that we have in this country and it will be very difficult to get rid of for a couple reasons. First of all, it's crucial to Ontario and Quebec and their dairy and poultry sectors. Again, we have offensive and defensive interests in trade policy. Uh, defensive things are ones we want to protect. So Ontario and uh, Quebec want to protect dairy and poultry. Why? Because they're not competitive. They're not competitive internationally. So we, we treat that as a defensive interest and we don't want to compete, so we protect it. Um, someone brought up uh, the, the old wheat board at our table. Well, we used, to, we used to be like that with grain, too. We used to protect grain. But we, we gained a competitive advantage in it. We got efficient in it. We were able to compete in international markets. So that went from the defensive list to the offensive list. And down goes the wheat board and open go the barriers. And now we want to drop all those barriers with Korea and all these other countries, which were there because we wanted them there before, right? So, I mean... So supply management from an economic perspective, you'll hear Danny talk about it, uh, but from a political perspective, it makes a lot of sense and I understand why. The other piece you have to think about this too though is from a negotiation strategy, and we were talking about this at our table as well. We don't have a lot of big chips to give away. So my hunch is that we're probably stuck in this second generation era of agreements, kind of where we are now. The walls are coming back up again uh, and we're probably not gonna move beyond that in the near future. But if we ever do, if we ever move to a third generation of progressive agreements where we get a lot of really important new things on the table, we have to have stuff we can trade. Uh, we have to be able to, to give things away. So, uh, and maybe at that point we will be competitive in some of those areas. So, softwood lumber, it's so contentious it's not even in NAFTA. There's nothing in NAFTA about softwood lumber. 
So that's why every five years we have agreements. We have softwood lumber agreements, SLAs with the United States. They're five years long. They expire. Then we go to war on softwood lumber again. So the last one just expired. And lo and behold, we're repeating the same cycle of things that we have for the last three decades. We'll fight with them for another, I don't know, five, six years probably. They'll throw up big barriers. They'll accuse us of dumping. And there's some merit to that because we don't charge the full amount that we should charge to cut down a tree. That's what stumpage fees are all about. British Columbia gives loggers a pretty good price on how to cut down a tree. And the Americans argue it's not market, not market uh, competitive. And so there's some merit to that. But, but we will continue to do this. They'll collect millions of dollars from forestry companies who still want to flood the market with their goods. And then five years from now, or four years from now, or three years from now, we'll negotiate a new softwood lumber agreement. Why are companies willing to do that? Companies are, forest companies are willing to do that because they see profit in it in the long term. They'll, they'll pay the short-term price to, to make the long-term gain. So. Hi, my name is Pat Greenlee. Um, our federal government has been talking about a, a national farmer care program. Does this have anything to do with NAFTA? Like, is it Potentially, procurement yeah. or...? Well, here, here's a NAFTA scenario. So if I'm an American pharmaceutical company, and I want to make money in my market, Canada, and suddenly we come up with a national uh, pharmacare program where the federal government is subsidizing the cost of, of, of drugs to citizens or generic drugs to citizens, and I'm an American pharmaceutical company, under NAFTA Chapter 11, I can launch a dispute because I'm, I'm losing an investment opportunity in your market because you're unfairly subsidizing a national program for healthcare. Now, Canada is going to respond well, no, we can do that because we have exemptions in all of our schedules related to public goods, which are basically health care, education. But then the battle, so then the battle, you'll have an after chapter 11 challenge going. Then you'll have another battle in the WTO going over our interpretation over those provisions in that allow us to protect those things. You'll have a separate NAFTA challenge going because that's what happens with softwood lumber. You get six different challenges going at the same time. Some WTO, some NAFTA. So Yes, under NAFTA Chapter 11, I could definitely see a, an American pharmaceutical company doing that. It's what we call a preventative regulatory regime. A lot of time, governments won't go somewhere because they fear the possibility of a NAFTA challenge under Chapter 11. So uh, give you a concrete example, New Brunswick was going to change their automobile insurance program to a public system, much like what BC has, ICBC. Manitoba has a public system, right, government run. Saskatchewan too, right? So New Brunswick was going to change that. And they dropped it in the mid-90s because they were afraid of an after Chapter 11 challenge. So a company can't go after, so an existing Manitoba, BC, uh, Saskatchewan, an American insurance company can't go after those programs because they're grandfathered in. They're, they've been there a long time, right? Anything new, though, then it's fair game. So I would argue that that's, that's probably going to be a big discussion when it comes to the national uh, uh, pharmacare program, if it, if it materializes. Yeah. Hi, Ken Sears. Um, I was a little reluctant to bring this up because in some ways it sounds like rampant paranoia. But you just briefly touched on, the in the auto sector, the proposal that, what, 35% of all product and, and goods had to come from jurisdictions where it was between 17, uh, $15 and $17 an hour wage. Well, obviously that's exclusionary to Mexico. There's no question yep. about that. However, the auto sector historically has been one of the most 
thoroughly unionized sectors in probably in the world. And because of that, the, the, not just the annual, the hourly wage, but with benefits, the benefits um, are well above 17 to $18 an hour. Now, the question I have is if that language, that proposed language were to be accepted, does that then put a barrier, a cap on uh, negotiated wages and settle settlements? And if that's the case, does that then run straight into uh, the Super Canadian Supreme Court decisions around the right to, to organize and collective bargaining? Yeah, I mean, if I'm a union leader right now, I'm not thrilled about the American provisions. For $15, $17 an hour is not a lot of money. You know, and, and most auto workers historically, uh, that's how the American middle class was built, was in manufacturing, and uh, paying wages to people so that they could have a, a, a middle class or upper middle class lifestyle. Uh, you know, so, and it wasn't at $15, $17 an hour. It was much higher than that. But what you have to understand about the, the transformation of the manufacturing sector in the automobile industry is that those jobs uh, don't exist anymore. There's very few people making $35, $40 an hour on the floor of an automobile plant anymore. Most of those jobs have disappeared. And why have they disappeared? S some have gone to Mexico, absolutely. Uh, but the bigger problem is technology uh, for, uh, for, the uh, for the auto workers because actual physical labor has been replaced by technology. A lot of that is so, a lot of the production of an automobile now is so automated uh, that you don't actually need people other than to monitor the machines uh, and therefore you're not classified as the same type of worker you were before and you can be paid 15 to 17 dollars an hour. The other thing too is there's still lots of automobile jobs in the United States, they're just not in Michigan and Illinois and all the places they used to be. There, does it, I'm not sure people understand this but the, the, the hub of the American automobile sector right now is Tennessee. Because they don't, they they have very tough anti-union laws, so they moved all the labor down to Tennessee, where they can pay them fifteen to seventeen dollars an hour to do any of the actual manufacturing that exists. So by capping that at fifteen to seventeen dollars an hour, as if I'm a union boss, and this is Jerry Diaz, Unifor uh, from Canada, came out very strongly against this right out of the gate, because really what you're doing is you're you're creating a new uh, category of automobile workers that will be paid a very low wage to basically do non-automobile work, right? You'll monitor a machine or something like that. So, you know, what, we're, what Canada's calling for in the negotiations for NAFTA right now is a very long phase-in period. So, okay, you agree to that? Well, we want seven years to phase this in. So, you know, that $15 to $17 an hour thing. So we can keep our automobile workers, those that are still there, we can keep paying them at a healthy wa uh, wage if we can and give us five to seven years to transition out of that. So, so yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's not good news if you're a, a labor leader at all because it's a little bit above minimum wage. What's, what's minimum wage in this province now? Excuse me, you'll need to come to the microphone. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, the, you're talking about the Supreme Court stuff about like. Yeah, okay, well, two things there. Uh, and I wish Peter McCormick was here today. Uh, Lorraine's here, but Peter's our constitutional expert and could probably give you a much better answer than I can. Um, so two things. First of all, the Supreme Court typically doesn't like to rule on economic issues. 
the, and the, the, the internal trade one with beer was classic. Anybody who watches the court knew they weren't going to do anything there because they don't, they'll intrude on social issues, but they don't like to come in to regulate things that will have anything to do with the national economy. So my hunch would be they would be reluctant to get involved with that, or, and if they did hear a case, it would probably be status quo, trying to push the parties back to settle outside of court. Um, but the other issue, too, is if you're a union, you have to have people to organize. You have to have people working in a profession to organize. And as these jobs disappear, and they disappear because they just don't exist anymore, you have less of those people to organize anymore. And instead, your, your core basis of support is going to be the people making 15 to 17. So there will be nothing preventing unions to continue to organize, but it will just be a different class of workers at a much lower pay grade uh, that, that are, and, and you won't be allowed to mobilize because those people don't exist making 35 to $40 an hour, are not at a large enough level that you can organize with any sort of clout that will have any sort of economic impact. So. This will be our last question. Thank you. For those that know, I want to inform them, and for those that don't know, I want to remind them that supply management is the cost of production passed on to the consumer. Yep. Whatever is added after the farm gate, we have no control. And it is not competitive with heavily subsidized dairy products from other countries. This, it's just a joke that we tell each other that it's not competitive because we are competitive. If you added all the subsidized money that the farmers get in other countries. Thank you. Yeah, as I said, it's, uh, as I said earlier, uh, the argument for supply management, it's pretty hard to make an economic argument for supply management. Um, but politically, there's a lot of reasons why it still exists. And, and I would argue that that's the bigger issue now. It's Quebec and Ontario voters and the fact that we need something to trade in future negotiations. Uh, Chris, have you, uh, have you got a question that uh, you would like people to take home or discuss or a challenge that you'd like to put to them? That's uh, caught me off guard there. Um, hang on, I think there's a follow-up. I'll just divert to... Uh, uh, it's not a follow-up, but supply okay. management is uh, federal law, not provincial. It was established in 1972 yep. when some farmers got together and they yep. says, well, we make a plan, we take it to the government, we supply good products, and the government said, and, and we continue to supply that if we are protected from other countries that subsidize their food. Now, on the dairy part of it, we have healthier milk than other countries do. We have cleaner milk by about half than the other countries do, you know, some of our neighbors. And it is competitive if you look at all the aspects of it. But it's just like the Canadian Wheat Board and the railways, when they were voted in favor of having to continue the Canadian Wheat Board, farmers have lost their marketing power, and it's just the multinationals that benefit. Free trade agreements do not exist. As a Canadian I think, we, uh, court, we'll have to we went to court nine times and it's a law it's free trade agreements are 
a lawyer's paradise. Oh, yeah. There'll be another there. chance to pick this up in a couple of weeks. And uh, right. uh, I want to tell you that there's extra food and you can have some at the back for $2. And I'd like the group today to thank our guest speaker very much. Thank you, Chris.